The United States views China's deployment of anti-access and area denial systems as posing a challenge to American interests and, by extension, the existing regional security architecture. China sees the United States as a rival for the same sphere of influence in East Asia. Will the United States and China manage their differences peacefully, or is there a growing risk of military conflict? To debate this question, we have to my right Dr. Graham Allison, the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government um, and uh, Director uh, of Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs between 1995 and uh, July of uh, this year. And as you know, he uh, served as Assistant Secretary of Defense in the, in the first Clinton administration. To my left, we have Dr. Evan Medeiros, who is now Managing Director and Practice Head for uh, Asia at the Eurasia Group, and uh, he served on the National Security Council staff uh, during the Obama administration for nearly six years. Before we start this debate, we are going to vote. So will you vote, please, that there is a growing risk of war between the United States and China? Yes or no? And I want, to, I want to all encourage you to read uh, Professor Allison's book. We're just doing a bit of promoting while you're, while you're voting, since, since he was kind enough to bring me a copy. And uh, I hope all these clickers are, are working, because there's, there's more people than that in the room. <laughs> um, OK. Um, give you a few more seconds. We have growing risk of war at 40% say yes, and 60% say no. Um, we've now got a few more people still voting. Okay, um, I think we'll cut it off here. We're now at 40% and 59%, so close to 60. Um, so uh, the onus, therefore, is on you, uh, Dr. Allison, to reverse this vote in your direction. We're going to give you 15 minutes to start um, in that podium, please. So thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be here and uh, to participate in this CSIS drill down on the rise of China and its impact on the U.S. and the international order that the U.S. Uh, took the lead in constructing and is underwritten for the past seven decades, uh, which uh, uh, for this group, I hardly need to remind you, have not accidentally been seven decades without great power war. Something that we should never take for granted. Uh, indeed, something about which we should not be complacent. So to explore these issues, Bonnie, uh, uh, and her team have chosen an unusual format. And when she first called me in June to ask about this, I said, you know, I don't really do debates. Uh, I uh, remember those from high school. I wasn't a debater in high school. I come from the analytic community. Uh, so I declined. Uh, for those of you who know Bonnie, no is rarely the last answer when she asks you to do something. So she was more persuasive. And after she told me that Evan and I would be exploring this issue together, I said, well, okay, I'll at least experiment with the format and let's see uh, uh, how it works out. Because I think uh, the issues are certainly ones that I think are, are vital for all of us. And uh, let me start with a quick shout out for Evan Medeiros. Uh, he served with great distinction for six years as a key advisor to Obama in the White House, where he played a major role in trying to find ways to cope with the rising China and its impact on the US. Uh, and I applaud his service and his success, especially his success. Uh, and I look forward to his, uh, I always read his uh, insights now that he's at the Eurasia Group. Uh, so, uh, I think actually if we weren't debating this issue, I'm confident that we agree about way more than we disagree. We were just chatting before. So uh, we'll have to strain a little bit 
Uh, but I think he would find it hard to argue with the proposition that the risk of war between the U.S. and China has been rising since he left the White House. <laughs> but I'll leave, leave that to you to, I'll leave that to you to ask him. Okay. So following uh, Bonnie's format, we should start by being clear what the proposition is. So the proposition is that, before the House, to read it, is that there's a rising risk of war between the U.S. and China. And let's be clear what it's not. So a different proposition, but that's not the proposition, is that war between the U.S. and China is inevitable. Actually, I think war between the U.S. and China is not inevitable. I think Evan thinks war between U.S. and China is not inevitable. So this is not about inevitability of war. Secondly, uh, this is not about war between the U.S. and China is likely. I believe that war between the U.S. is not likely. Not likely this year. Not likely if I were making a bet for the decade ahead. So if the proposition was, is war between the U.S. and likely, I would say no. But the proposition is uh, whether the risk of war between the U.S. and China is rising, that's the proposition, or alternatively declining or staying roughly the same. That's the all, three, all of the three possibilities. And my proposition is, and I do believe this, not just for the purposes of the debate, that the risks of war between the U.S. and China have been rising for the past year and are rising today and are likely to be rising in the foreseeable future, even though that's not to the point of war being likely and certainly not to the point of war being inevitable. So to the question, how to assess risks of war, uh, I can imagine three ways that we could do it. One, we can see what American citizens think. Now, of course, you know, what do citizens know? On the other hand, they do vote, and that becomes our leader. We know about the wisdom of crowds, so it's at least relevant what citizens think, I think. Secondly, we can ask what experts think. Again, what do experts know about the risks of war? Often less than you would imagine, but still, they, they uh, know something, and they're relevant. And thirdly, uh, we can ask what the evidence suggests. We're part of an analytic community that looks at the evidence, looks at structural factors, looks at players, and tries to assess what's going on. So since most of us come from that community, let me start in reverse order. What does the evidence suggest? Then I'll say just a quick word about what the experts say, and I'll close with what the American public says. Just to anticipate my conclusions, the evidence suggests that the, war, the risk of war is rising. The experts say, the risk of war is rising. The public says the risk of war is rising. So that's my conclusion, but let me say a word about each. Okay. So if you leap ahead a year from today, and we know that there was a war between the US and China, maybe just a limited regional war, but a war in which more than a thousand American or Chinese combatants were killed by each other. That's what it means a war. And we're trying to look back on this, uh, look back on this and say, how did this happen? Well, the most urgent crisis on the agenda today is clearly North Korea. And this is, uh, as I've written in a separate context, like a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. To remember, in 1962, over an intense 13 days, John Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev confronted each other eyeball to eyeball in an event that historians agree was the most dangerous moment in recorded history. John Kennedy ran what he thought was a one in three chance of war with the Soviet Union, a war that could have killed 100 million people, he believed correctly, to prevent the Soviet Union successfully installing nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba that could attack the American homeland. 
So we should ask ourselves, what risk will Donald Trump be prepared to run to prevent Kim Jong-un from acquiring the ability to attack the American homeland with nuclear weapons? So the crisis that we're now seeing accelerate, like a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion that's speeding up, is caused first by Kim Jong-un's determined drive to acquire the ability to hit San Francisco or Los Angeles with nuclear weapons. That's the driver. The confrontation and risks of war comes from the fact that Donald Trump has said, this is simply not going to happen. From the moment that he heard of this uh, issue, which was when President Obama talked to him during the transition, and he went out and immediately tweeted, not going to happen, to his conversations in Beijing last week with Xi Jinping, in which he said, I'm telling you, one thing for sure is not going to happen. And if the only way to prevent this happening is for me to attack North Korea, that's what I'm going to do. So we have a unstoppable force and an immovable object on a current collision path. And 12 months from now, we're going to know one of three things happened. Either first, North Korea succeeded in completing a set of ICBM tests that give it a, a reliable capability to strike the U.S. with nuclear weapons. That's option one. Option two, Trump attacks North Korea in one of an array of possible military attacks to prevent this happening. Or three, there's a minor miracle. So I, I believe in miracles. So I would wish for a miracle. I would even pray for a miracle. But I would say the first of these three is the most likely. Most likely, Kim Jong-un succeeds. The second, which is the next most likely, is that Trump attacks North Korea. And thirdly, there's the possibility of the minor miracle for which I'm praying, which would be she and Trump together stopping Kim Jong-un from his nuclear advance. I wrote a piece about that in Politico last week, if you want more details about it. So in any case, if the U.S. chooses, if, if Kim Jong-un continues on the path that he's on, and Trump decides to attack him, then what's going to happen? Well, likely, Kim Jong-un is going to attack Seoul. That's the scenario that Evan and I have been through dozens of times. In that case, the U.S. then attacks North Korea to try to prevent them killing more tens of thousands of people in Seoul. At that point, you likely see a resumption of the Second Korean War. In that war, we should remember, in the First Korean War, what happened in 1950. If you have trouble believing that Kim Jong-un could drag China and the U.S. into a war that neither of us want, Remember, this already happened before. This is what happened in 1950. When North Korea attacked South Korea, the U.S. came to the rescue, pushing up the peninsula, approaching the Chinese border. China ended the war, beat us back down to the 38th parallel. Tens of thousands of Americans, hundreds of thousands of Chinese, and millions of Koreans were killed in that war. So when Secretary Mattis testifies about it, he says, remember, this, if it happens, will be a catastrophic war. And it's, uh, the Chinese believe that Mao demonstrated the point that, North, that Korea will not be unified under the control of an American military ally if they can prevent it. They prevented it in 1950, and they say they'll do it again. So when I work through the analysis of the issue, if I just be very quick, uh, given the time, I would do it in four layers. First, structural conditions. Uh, this is I've, what I've written about in Thucydides' trap. We're facing severe structural conditions in which a rising China is threatening to displace a ruling U.S. Historically, when this happens, extreme danger ahead. In my book, I look at the last 500 years. I find 16 cases in which this occurred. Twelve of these end in war, four in not war. So it would be a mistake to say war is inevitable, but to say the odds are not good under these structural conditions would be correct. Secondly, 
There's third-party provocations. Most of the cases in which the Thucydidean dynamic, the dangerous dynamic between a rising power and a ruling power, end in war, don't occur because the rising power decides it's a good time to attack the ruling power. Or the ruling power decides, I better attack the rising power while I still have time. It's instead that a third party's provocation, which would otherwise be inconsequential or easily managed, triggers a reaction by one of the two primary competitors, which leads to a cascade at the end of which they find themselves in a war neither wanted. Think what happened in 1950. Did Mao want a war with the US? Never. Did the US want a war with China? Not at all. Think what happened in 1914. Think what almost happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Kennedy and Khrushchev did not want a war. The Kaiser uh, and the Prime Minister of Britain did not want a war. Mao and Truman did not want a war. But war happened, so the provocations. Third, there's the institutional amplifiers. If I were given a lecture on this, I would say remember two things. First, transition phenomena. Richard Neustadt, one of the great presidential scholars in the 20th century, reminded us that the first year of administrations is extremely dangerous because people don't know their jobs. They're getting to find their way to the bathroom. They're finding a way to relate to each other. Look at Kennedy in his first year in the Bay of Pigs. So this is happening in the first year. Secondly, we have a one-man rule. So if President Trump wants to do something about uh, the, a wall or about immigration or about uh, other issues, there's a lot of constitutional pushback. In war making, the president alone decides. That's the way our system works. So fourth and finally, we have the decision makers, the players, and the decision making process. And I think if you felt comforted by Kim Jong-un before, now we have at least a serious competitor in Washington. So uh, I would say, look at the evidence. Secondly, look and see what the experts say. Here I've got a slide for you that just goes from John Brennan uh, and through usual suspects to the next slide, please. And this goes all the way to uh, the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which has moved up its clock on the likelihood of war, or uh, uh, the, uh, oh, sorry, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, or the Union of Concerned Scientists. So I'd say the expert community is pretty unanimous on this issue. And finally, if we ask what the public says, if we go to the next slide. So if you ask, what does it say about the risks of war? It says they've been rising steadily. And the next slide. You can see here, this is both for Democrats and for Republicans. So to conclude, uh, is the risk of war between the US and China rising? I believe the analysis says the answer is yes. I believe the experts believe the answer is yes. And I believe the public thinks the answer is yes. So I would say the answer is yes. Okay, Evan Medeiros, the floor is yours. Uh, good morning, everybody, and Graham, thank you very much for the uh, wonderful presentation. Uh, let me begin by thanking Bonnie for inviting me to this debate. As a longtime high school and college debater, I sort of welcome the opportunity to, um, uh, to, to sort of put my boots back on and get back into the debate world. Now, I have to admit, I was born and grew up in the smallest state of America, Rhode Island. So even though I was the high school debate champion three years in a row, it's a state of only a million people. So, you know, uh, you can sort of caveat it appropriately. And let me thank Graham for his very, uh, very kind and generous words about my time at the NSC. You don't really get a lot of generosity about the Obama administration in Washington these days. So the fact that we avoided war with China and North Korea being a success, that's a, sort of, that's a, a very, very welcome uh, accolade. 
And Graham, Graham let me return the favor by uh, thanking you for your decades of intellectual leadership on U.S. national security policy. I doubt there's anybody in the room that has not read Essence of Decision at some point in uh, graduate school or in their studies over time. And that was just at the beginning of your career. I commend every, everybody to read his newest book, which he just signed for me today, which is an absolutely uh, fascinating uh, treatise and discussion about the possibility of inevitable war between the United States and China. As Graham said, we agree far more than we disagree, and, and I'd like to begin by highlighting those areas of agreement, because in any good debate, of course, it's, it's, we want to focus on the areas of disagreement, but it's important uh, as part of this intellectual community to understand where we agree. First and foremost, that the, the U.S.-China relationship is an extraordinarily important relationship that is largely going to be a price maker in terms of global stability. It's no longer going to be reflective of global um, political dynamics as it, was, as it was during the Cold War, but rather it is one that is going to dictate power relationships globally. Point number two, the U.S.-China relationship has both cooperative and competitive elements. The competitive elements and dynamics have been intensifying in recent years on both security issues and economic issues. The areas of security competition are well known. U.S. alliances, Taiwan, North Korea, cybersecurity, and maritime questions. And importantly, they're well known to policymaker and analysts on both sides. Point number three, I think Graham and I can both agree the U.S.-China relationship is a mature, dense, deeply institutionalized relationship in which leaders on both sides understand the importance of the relationship to each other. Nobody wants war, and war is not in the interest of either American or Chinese policymakers. Importantly, leaders on both sides, I believe, are very well aware of the underlying strategic mistrust and the risk of falling into the Thucydides trap of inevitable conflict. As somebody that participated in the meetings with President Obama and President Xi, they talked about this issue repeatedly. It's well known on both sides. So that said, I think Graham and I both agree there's, that there is absolutely a risk of uh, confrontation and conflict be between the United States and China. You can never say the risk is zero. There's mutual suspicions about each other's long-term intentions. Uh, both countries have highly capable militaries. There are big issues of disagreement and competition. And of course, they're third-party actors. So I think we agree that there is a risk of war and conflict. To put it differently, whenever you have major powers with diverging security interests, there's a risk of war. But that's not the question before us today. The question before us today is the risk of great power war between the United States and China, not between the United States and North Korea, is the risk of great power war between the United States and China growing? I say no for several reasons which I'll uh, highlight to you, but I'll also argue that taking this position that there's a growing risk of war, that there's a risk of a Thucydides trap, is also a very dangerous and potentially counterproductive argument because it leads you to a variety of very dangerous prescriptions that could push the United States and its allies to prematurely uh, compromise its, its interests and perhaps even embolden a rising power to take actions that would ultimately lead to instability. But let me start with my first set of arguments about why I think the risk of great power war is not growing as uh, Graham asserts. First and foremost is the security situation today. As I said, we all know that the risks of conflict are there between two great powers. Maritime issues, South China Sea, East China Sea, North Korea, etc. But rather, Graham is making a generic argument that there are structural features of this relationship between a rising power and an established power that make the risks of conflict even greater. But the question I have to ask, I, I, have, I put forward today is, uh, is North Korea the Cuban Missile Crisis? Is North Korea or the South China Sea the Berlin of the 1940s or the 1950s? Is Xi Jinping really Khrushchev? That's essentially the proposal that Graham is putting forward to, uh, today. What I would argue is that that's an interesting argument, it's a historically informed argument, but it's one that does not take into account the key specific factors related to U.S.-China security dynamics, the U.S. position in Asia, military technology, the economic links between us, uh, among other features. It's also important to keep in mind that when you make this argument that 
we not just focus on measuring China's strengths, but we also measure its weaknesses. And this is an argument that he makes more um, fully in his book as opposed to in his presentation today. But the question is, is China really involved in this inexorable rise in which the United States feels that it's sort of threatened on a daily basis? Uh, as I'm sure many of you know, China has a variety of its own domestic challenges, growing debt, environmental destruction, a military that hasn't fought a conflict since 1989, and then the fact that they're desperately trying to um, uh, adopt a series of economic reforms to avoid the middle income trap. So the China I see today is the China that is struggling with both strengths and weaknesses, and I think that's the one that policymakers see as well. Look no further than President Trump's recent very positive, surprisingly positive statements about President Xi during his, his uh, state visit. Secondly, great power war is far less likely in the nuclear age. Uh, what Graham doesn't tell you about the 16 case studies that he did is that four of those case studies did not lead to war. Of four of those case studies that did not produce war, three of them occurred in the nuclear age. Simply put, nuclear deterrence and the risk of escalation to nuclear war is a very, very powerful motivation to avoid conflict and to induce caution between two great powers. And in fact, I would argue deterrence is actually improving in the US-China relationship. China has been gradually, incrementally uh, working on improving the credibility of its retaliatory capability. Uh, it arguably has a very viable deterrent now that it, especially that it has a sea-based leg of that deterrent. And so the more secure it becomes in the credibility of its retaliatory posture, the greater the stability in uh, the US-China relationship and the more that nuclear weapons and the specter of nuclear conflict is a, a caution-inducing uh, phenomena. Three, the military realities militate against the risk of a US-China conflict. In the Western Pacific, the military, um, the conventional military environment is a defense-dominant environment. Don't take my word for it. Take the, wor uh, take the word of an excellent article by Biddle and Ulrich in International Security in summer of 2016, in which they outline in detail the extensive um, conventional capabilities that a variety of countries, including China, have been building in the Western Pacific. Those conventional capabilities absolutely favor the defense to the point at which the barriers to actually engaging in some kind of aggressive conventional military activity are, are, are increasing. Related to that is the fact that the uh, security environment in East Asia is only becoming more multipolar. Not only do you have China rising, but you have Japan modernizing its military. Same thing with Korea, Australia, now India getting into the picture. So the question is, is that an environment where a rising power thinks it can sort of throw some elbows and engage in uh, risky behavior without it being prohibitively costly? So I would argue that not only is uh, the environment becoming more multipolar and as a result costlier and riskier for a rising power, to assert itself, but the military environment uh, does as well. Fourth, Chinese policy and Chinese statecraft is specifically designed to avoid this kind of direct conflict with the United States. China's approach has been challenge but do not confront. Slowly change the facts on the ground without provoking the United States. There's a variety of metaphors people in Washington like to use. Boiling the frog, slicing the salami. The, but I think the reality is the Chinese recognize that they have deliberate strategies for managing their areas of competition with the United States. Uh, I think that the um, Xi administration has actually done a very good job of managing a, the establishment of relationship, the relationship with, with President Trump. They haven't taken the bait. They focused on building a um, personal relationship between the two. They focused on managing Trump's expectations. So this is not a China that, that looks like it's uh, interested in engaging in risky behavior, but actually uh, managing what they see as the new, uh, more challenging variable in the U.S.-China relationship, which of course is the new U.S. president. Uh, fourth, China's overall goals, national rejuvenation, realizing the China dream, all of these would be shattered by engaging in major power conflict with the United States. Look no further than total trade is 37% of GDP for China. Total exports are about 20% of GDP. So the costs of engaging in conflict with the United States are very, very substantial. And so I would argue that uh, for China, 
the economic impact of stumbling into a conflict with the United States are exceptionally high. In other words, so even when you have a situation of, let's say, even if I grant Graham that there might be a war between the US and North Korea, does that mean there's going to be a war between China and the United States? The barriers to war between the United States are so substantial, as, as I laid out. There's so many other possible solutions and possible um, steps China could take in the event of a U.S.-North Korea war. I would, I would focus in particular on the fact that Graham has not really explained to us how does this scenario play out. So even if there is, let's say, there's armed conflict between the U.S. and North Korea, and we don't really know, he doesn't tell us how that comes about. Does the U.S. strike North Korea? Does North Korea engage in some provocation that escalates? So we don't really know how that comes about. But let's say it does. Grant him that argument. Then the question becomes, how does that turn into a U.S.-China conflict? So China is going to rush to the defense of North Korea? Is that the scenario? Why is that in China's interests? Couldn't you equally imagine a scenario in which China just pushes PLA troops 20 miles into North Korea, creates a cordon sanitaire, and then begins uh, you know, sitting down with the US, South Korea, uh, et cetera, to begin to uh, talk about and think about what the future of the Korean Peninsula looks like? In other words, this is a highly, highly uh, unspecified scenario. So it's unclear to me why the risk of a U.S.-China war is increasing, even, even if there is a risk of uh, armed conflict between the U.S. and North Korea. But on that point of, about the increased risk of U.S. and North Korea, actually, after Trump's visit, it looks decidedly different. Uh, the administration has come off their very heated rhetoric about the risk of military conflict, uh, both in Trump's conversations with Prime Minister Abe and President Moon of, of South Korea, both of them made very clear how much they would oppose a unilateral military action on the part of the United States. So actually, after Trump's visit, it looks like the possibility that, uh, of the US using, um, using military force to solve the North Korea conflict is, uh, is probably declining. But let me end with two um, final arguments which are separate from this whole question of U.S.-North Korea leading to U.S.-China conflict, which is just this notion of peddling the idea that conflict between the U.S. and China is rising, or even worse, that the conflict between the United States and China is inevitable, is a very, very dangerous idea. Because uh, it leads you to begin thinking about steps that potentially could undermine U.S. interests, but also increase the risk of war. Uh, there's uh, a lot of wonderful content in uh, Graham's book, but in his concluding chapters, he talks about a variety of areas where the U.S. should begin uh, playing with and potentially thinking about accommodating uh, Chinese interests. Now, he rightly points out there's a difference between accommodation and appeasement. That's an important distinction. But nonetheless, in the accommodation column, he talks about things like with the U.S. withdrawing its commitment to Taiwan in exchange for Chinese concessions on South China Sea or North Korea. Is that a good idea? He talks about withdrawing U.S. forces from South Korea in exchange for China getting North Korea to stop testing nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. Is that a good idea? The U.S. recognizing spheres of influence around its borders. Is that a good idea? Are we at that point where the United States um, is so on the back foot in East Asia that we have to begin uh, making those kinds of heavy-duty policy trade-offs? I would argue no, for all the reasons that I enumerated. China has weaknesses and challenges as, long as, as well as having strengths. There are any number of reasons why war and conflict uh, between the United States and China are more costly for China than they would be for the United States. But lastly, let me point out that we talk a lot about, you know, Graham talks about the Thucydides trap, the idea that there are these structural conditions that make third-party conflict possible. But let's not forget about the Chamberlain trap, the Chamberlain trap being prematurely trying to accommodate a rising power may actually embolden that rising power to be more assertive, thinking its time has come because it's misreading signals from the United States. I think we need to keep in mind the costs associated with these kind of arguments as well. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, Bonnie did not tell me that uh, Evan was a debater in high school, but I, I, I can now... I, can I didn't now, tell her, Graham. I can now see his skills uh, exhibited. Uh, and I think actually he made about a dozen good points. 
if I wrote him down correctly, with which I agree. But I think he, in doing so, managed to obscure, and I hope not successfully, the question before the House. So the question before the House is simply whether the risks of war between the US and China are rising or alternatively are declining or staying the same. And I think actually if one takes Evan, if you take Evan's argument, he's pretty clear the risks are rising, but he doesn't think war is likely, which I agree, and he certainly thinks war is not inevitable, with which I agree. So let's stay with the question uh, first of the risks in themselves, and then secondly, his final point about whether recognizing the fact that these risks are real and rising is dangerous, that's his claim, or alternatively, my claim would be that complacency about the severe structural stress, the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, that complacency about that is dangerous. So first, I gave you the array of arguments, but I saved, if I have it here, uh, one, which comes from a, a, a noted risk assessor. Uh, uh, and let me quote from this risk assessor's report called Risks 2017. Quote, third is the rise of China and growing, underlying growing, potential for conflict with the US. Secondly, China's new opportunities to set the rules and the Trump administration's search for, quote, new and better, close quote, deals will also make it more likely, underline more likely, that China and the US will collide. And then thirdly, for the past decade, North Korea has been a problem, but not a significant risk. That changed in 2017. So I won't tell you who this expert was, but he's the lead analyst for the Eurasia Group. Uh, and the, very reading, subtle, Graham, very subtle. I'm, re right. I'm, reading, I'm reading from their <laughs> Trying report. Trying to get me fired. <laughs> I'm reading from their report and you can go look it up. Okay, okay. so second proposition. And this is one that I think is not a debater's point. This is a point I feel uh, passionate about. I think recognizing severe risks and danger is not dangerous. Failing to recognize that when you have extreme conditions, you're required to have extreme imagination and extreme adaptability. That's dangerous. What was dangerous in 1914 was people's not recognizing the ways in which the assassination of an archduke could trigger a cascade of actions and reactions that ended in a war that burned down everybody's house. What was dangerous in the Cuban Missile Crisis was many people saying, well, if we attack the missiles in Cuba, what will they do? They'll do nothing. And we'll live with it as opposed to thinking, wait a minute, what will they do? What could they do? What could happen in Turkey? What could happen in Berlin? How could one thing lead to the other? So I, I think, I mean, I, I believe this quite strongly, that, why, that we're facing and will face for a generation the, the, the extreme dangers that come from this dynamic, which is not a ground for pessimism and certainly not grounds for accommodation. It's for imagination, for a surge of strategic imagination, like what gave us the strategy for the Cold War. So, and adaptability. In the book, I conclude not with a plea for accommodation, not at all, so that was not quite right, what Evan said. I say the current thing that passes for a strategy in Washington, engage but hedge, we should recognize is just going with the flow. So whatever happens, happens. We're either engaging or we're hedging. And I say, what we need now, and I think particularly for the younger people here, 
We need a burst of imagination like what happened between 1946 and 1950, in which people we now revere as, coal, as the wise men of the Cold War invented a strategy. So I then, in the book, say, I can imagine something way to the left of where we are now. It would be called accommodation. Evan suggested that. I said, I can imagine something way to the right of where we are now, which would be to try to undermine Splinter and ultimately uh, destabilize the, uh, the Chinese government. And I say, I'm not recommending any of these. I'm just saying we need a spectrum much wider than the one that we've had because under conditions of extreme danger, wise statesmen engage in extreme imagination and extreme adaptability. Okay, Evan, your five minutes. Thank you very much. Graham mischaracterizes my argument. What I said was there are risks. I'm agnostic about whether or not they're declining or staying the same, but my argument is that they are not rising. They are real, and it's important. We need to recognize that. Policy needs to reflect that, but whether or not they're rising uh, is an entirely different proposition. Graham's argument is that they're rising for one reason and one reason only, because there are a bunch of American pundits who say that the risk of war between the U.S. and North Korea is rising. Okay, granted. You know, we can debate whether or not those pundits are the right people to ask, but nonetheless, the risk, let's, let's say the risk of U.S.-North Korea conflict is rising. But Graham never explains to us and never specifies how you get to U.S.-China war from U.S.-North Korea war, right? I mean, that is critical. You can't win the argument until you specify how that works. And my proposition is the costs associated with U.S.-China conflict, the economic costs, the diplomatic costs, the military costs, the risk of nuclear escalation are so high that I'm pretty confident that U.S. and Chinese leaders can figure out a way how to manage the situation, even if you believe that uh, a war between the U.S. and North Korea breaks out in Northeast Asia. I mean, keep in mind that the Chinese leadership, as we all know from the recent big speeches that Xi Jinping gave, are very focused on national rejuvenation and achieving the China dream. But their goals are 2035, their goals are 2049, 2050. They're not there yet. Conflict with the United States would have enormous economic, diplomatic, military repercussions for China. They would basically uh, short-circuit Xi Jinping's effort to achieve the kind of rejuvenation that he's trying to accomplish. Graham never explains to us why China would be willing to bear those costs. But let's also keep in mind it's not just in China's control, it's in America's control. And the fact that we have a relationship that is dense, deeply institutionalized, a mature relationship, uh, in which leaders on both sides are well aware of these risks. Policymakers below them are constantly talking about these risks. In the Obama administration, one of the initiatives that I worked hardest on was creating confidence building measures for Navy to Navy, Air Force to Air Force contact in the air and at sea. It sounds like a sort of technocratic thing, and it is. It was hard to do. The Pentagon did phenomenal work on it, but it's actually a real tangible example of how the risks of unintended conflict motivate leaders to do difficult things like force the militaries to get together and uh, address these issues. But more broadly, when you start peddling these ideas of the risks of war rising, whether it's North Korea, South China Sea, Taiwan, or whatever, you know, I think that you run the risk of begin uh, moving towards policy solutions that could actually make the risks of conflict even worse. And I outlined those uh, initially. And let me just end on this note, which is for the United States, when we think about dealing with the challenges of a rising power, China or anybody else, what you really need are systemic solutions. In other words, creating a security environment, creating an economic environment in Asia in globally, and globally, in which that rising power, for its own reasons, chooses to work within that sort of security system and that economic system. Now, the theory behind TPP and TTIP was precisely that, create a new high standard set of rules, norms, and institutions that would create an environment in which China, for its own reason, would choose to 
uh, begin to change its approach to state-owned enterprises, government procurement, government subsidies, etc., in order to, um, you know, in order to ensure continued prosperity. And so I think the kind of solutions we need to be thinking about are those kind of systemic solutions in which countries in the region, for their own reasons, decide how to approach it. By talking about and highlighting the risks of war over China and North Korea, talking about sort of preemptive accommodation by pulling back on your commitment to Taiwan or uh, recognizing Chinese sphere of influence, I think that that could actually be very counterproductive. It runs the risk of breaking apart a consensus, a sort of a consensus within the United States about how to manage the U.S.-China relationship. So I go back to where I started. Graham and I agree far more than we disagree. We agree that uh, this is an important relationship. We agree that there is absolutely a risk of conflict, that policymakers need to be attentive to it. But again, that's not the proposition before us. The proposition is the risk rising, and my argument is no. Graham hasn't specified why, and um, we need to be careful in how much we embrace these ideas. Thank you. Okay, we have about 15 minutes, and once again, I'm gonna ask you to wait for the mic uh, when you ask your questions, and to please make your questions short, pose them to the speaker, that you would like to answer the question, or both of them, um, and uh, we're gonna to try to get in as many questions as we possibly can. Okay, at this table over here, this gentleman, please bring the mic over, identify yourself. Thank you. Uh, Thomas McCabe, independent analyst, former DOD. This is, my question is addressed to both of the speakers. Uh, you tended to dwell on the potential risk growing out of a conflict between the United States and North Korea. Neither one of you addressed, as I remember in any detail, the Taiwan issue, where you have basically an existential conflict between China, who considers Taiwan to be part of China, and Taiwan, who is now democratic, who, as I understand it, doesn't want to be part of China. Now, as I see the risk of war, I see the risk of war there as probably being more of a risk than in, with revolving North Korea. Would uh, either of you or both of you address that? So briefly, uh, yes. Okay. So yeah, I have a chapter in the book called From Here to War with five all too plausible paths for getting from here to war. And Taiwan is the first one of those, but Korea, I think, is currently the most dangerous. The realities are just the ones you, you identify. First, China is as certain that Taiwan is part of China as the U.S. is certain that California is part of the U.S. So this is something to fight about if anybody wants to fight. Secondly, as the Chinese, as Xi's China is becoming more controlled and authoritarian, people in Taiwan as well as people in Hong Kong more and more see that that's not the society I want to live in. So that's a trend line that you're going to see. She is not going to become more democratic, is, is China, and, Ch and Taiwan is not going to become less democratic if people are given their choice. So that's on a collision course. Thirdly, uh, the U.S. has actually been quite accommodating to China on Taiwan over now 30 years of different administrations. It's a very good account of that in Tom Christensen's forward to his recent book. So I think uh, this is a complicated issue because the U.S. position is if China seeks to re uh, reintegrate uh, Taiwan by force, the U.S. will, quote, come to its support. But there's not much detail about that. And I think it's quite unlikely that an American government would fight for China now. And I'm sure there's nobody else in the region who would. So those are realities. On the other hand, I think that China has showed itself to be patient, uh, but the trend lines are not good given the way China is going and the way Taiwan is going. I very much share Graham's views. I think there is a, there is a real risk there. I don't think it's particularly immediate uh, given the fact that 
the Thai government in Taiwan has not been pushing the envelope like Chen Shui-bian did. Um, I think Xi Jinping has demonstrated a relative degree of patience. Uh, on some readings of his work report, he basically feels as if China is prepared to wait until 2049. You know, reasonable experts can disagree about whether or not that, that is the precise way, the accurate way to read his work report. But nonetheless, yes, we need to keep our eyes on Taiwan because we know how high the stakes are for China. We understand what it means to them. Um, and as Graham rightly pointed out, in terms of the people of Taiwan, uh, their desire to reunify with the mainland is declining. It's not rising, especially as new age cohorts uh, become politically conscious and politically active. I can make one more footnote because I think it's, it's a good question. So part of the reason I think, and I think Evan and I, I mean, we sound like we disagree, but I think we agree about this. Part of the reason why we should, I think, identify risk factors like Taiwan and like uh, North Korea is to have both the expert communities and then the governments walk through these scenarios in order to see how they could drag us somewhere where we don't want to go in order to see what we could do jointly to prevent that happening. Okay, we have a question on the other side of the room. Stand up, please, and identify yourself. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Satoshi Nishihata, Washington correspondent of the Liberty and Happy Science Group. And I have a question to both. Uh, is it possible uh, that the, the, uh, the risk of the war is declining in the short run because of that uh, effective diplomatic efforts? But in the long, in the long run, if China seeks uh, global hegemony uh, toward 2049, as often said, uh, the, the, war, the risk of war seems to be rising in the long run. Thank you. Okay, fair question. We didn't put a time frame on it, but uh, that means it's sort of open-ended. Which one of you would like to take that question first? Evan? I mean, that's a great question, but it involves you making a key assumption, which is, as China's capabilities expand, will its intentions change? So yes, if, if China decided that it wanted to start asserting its hegemony uh, in the Western Pacific, so it was looking for a more coercive solution to the South China Sea, the East China Sea, um, yeah, I, that clearly would provoke a conflict with the United States. My proposition was it's, it's not clear that China is, uh, is on that particular pathway. Can this, or I think I disagree a little bit. I would say if you ask the question, are she and his colleagues serious about displacing the U.S. as the predominant power in the Western Pacific in their lifetime, in the foreseeable future? That the question I put to Lee Kuan Yew, who was the world's, I think, premier China watcher, and his answer is, of course, why not? Who could imagine otherwise? How could they? How could they not aspire to be number one in Asia, and in, in time, beyond that? So I think that's what we're seeing. And I, my read of the, uh, what just came out of, of Beijing with the 19th Party Congress, is that as she put it, he says we're going to stand strong and tall in the East. So I wrote that down. So let me just come back here. So the question is, a question that we all face in life is not what you want to do, but what you can do. So even if you grant Graham's proposition that you know, she and Chinese policymakers want to dominate the Western Pacific, and we can debate whether or not Lee Kuan Yew is sort of the right person to evaluate Chinese intentions, the question is, can China accomplish it? Uh, and can it accomplish it in a way that doesn't undermine other objectives? So sure. Xi Jinping could make a really good effort at dominating the Western Pacific, but if he did so in a way that sparked conflict with the US, Japan, and Korea, and ultimately undermined the national rejuvenation goal in turning China into a sort of an economic superpower, that's the question. And that's, you know, that's essentially what I'm arguing. When you look at the rack and stack of factors that enable and constrain Chinese policymakers, it leads you to different conclusions about what is actually possible, which is different than what their intentions are. Okay, next question. All right, we're gonna to go to the back. The gentleman there. Yes, you have your microphone. 
Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. I think this is a question for Professor Allison. Um, when you started off, uh, and a great presentation, uh, but you threw in a definition of war, which was a thousand killed on one side, a thousand killed on the other side. Now, that actually isn't in the uh, debate question. They didn't define war. But isn't a more realistic point of view to actually look at the current military definitions of war and the discussions? So we have gray zone warfare, hybrid warfare, what the Russians call new type warfare. Uh, there's quite an argument to be made that actually we're already at war in terms of the current new definitions of warfare as understood by the military. So you've actually got a much stronger viewpoint. So how about, could you respond to that? Okay, thank you. You're certainly right that uh, war has become an ambiguous term and there's a lot of different definitions pushing around. In the analytic community, it's generally accepted at the Defense Department or at the correlation of, of war, uh, 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 correlates of war project, that a thousand uh, combatants dead in a year equals a war. So when people try to say whether this was a war or not. Now, of course, there's civil wars, and there's internal conflicts, and there's gray zone wars, and there's other form of wars. Some people would even say, indeed, I think uh, Steve Bannon says, we're already at economic war with China. We just didn't recognize it. So war can become a metaphor. I gave that definition to try to take just uh, what, does, what, what was in the, in the analytic uh, community's definition. Okay, next question. All right, this woman in the front here. Microphone is on its way. It should be on. Oh, thank you. Uh, my question is to Ewen, uh, whether recognizing risks is a good thing or not. And I follow it up with uh, Graham that if, for example, we look in um, Asia Pacific right now, so Japan is doing its military deals with the US and preparing for um, any potential conflict, or South Korea is also buying arms from the US, or preparing for a defense, whether preparing for a defense can lead to an offense, offense given any political miscalculations or Thank you. That's a great question. Um, simply put, recognizing risks is not only a good thing, it's an essential thing for any responsible policymaker because, um, you know, you, you need to be aware of um, challenges to economic and security interests and you need to prepare accordingly. The, the, the policy challenge comes in in as you design your response, do you make that risk worse or are you managing it? This is sort of the essence of the security dilemma in political science. In other words, steps that you take that you think are improving your defense may actually be making the situation worse. Um, and that's where human agency comes in. You know, Graham will tell you that there are these immutable sort of physic-like laws and that's why, that's why the Thucydides trap and the structural conditions it creates might lead to US-China war um, over North Korea. What I argue is that human agency plays a much more important role. And uh, the, it's important for policymakers on all sides of the equation to have a pretty clear-eyed view of the intentions and the capabilities of the other and uh, respond accordingly. So absolutely recognizing these risks and responding uh, is essential. The question is, you know, do you do it in a way that ultimately makes the situation worse or not? And sometimes you don't know. I mean, there were plenty of decisions I made when I was at the White House. I have no idea yet whether or not they actually made the risks of conflict between the U.S. and China greater. You know, history will have to judge. So, uh I would say uh, I agree completely with what, uh, with what uh, Evan said. I think first, I, I wrote it down here. Recognizing risks is essential for responsible policymaking. So that's, I think, the, I mean, that would be the main takeaway for all of us, not debate aside. And I think the question of human agency, as well as structural conditions, is absolutely correct. And that's why probably somebody should ask Evan, does he feel more comfortable now with our White House than he did a year ago? Okay, um, we have a question over here on that side. James Schulein, and I'm an independent consultant. Uh, I actually want to build exactly on that last point. Uh, 
it seems as we consider the global security dilemma, I, I wonder about China's sensitivity to regional security dilemmas. Um, as it extends the Belt and Road, it will become exposed to potential regional conflicts, say between India and Pakistan. Uh, is China sensitive to that risk? How is China considering that risk? And how, how uh, do little conflicts, or in the case of India and Pakistan, huge conflicts or huge potential conflicts affect uh, your uh, consideration of the U.S.-China risk of conflict? Thank you. I think that's a great point. It, uh, it's one I could have made in my presentation. In other words, the way I interpret your point is as China evolves from a regional actor to a global actor and increasingly has economic, political, and military interests in countries outside of East Asia, that's going to basically stretch them thinner. So the ability to assume risk in its relationship with the United States or its relationship with Japan or Korea in East Asia will be constrained by the fact that they have to spend time, energy, resources, and mind share on managing their relationships with Central Asia, Russia, and Europe. So that's yet one more reason why I think that the, you know, the barriers to U.S.-China conflict are growing because the Chinese have a multiplicity of challenges and external constraints on their ability to uh, be aggressive and assertive in East Asia. I would agree with that. Also, I'll just make a footnote that the more uh, these adaptations have to occur, because there will be, uh, uh, let's even take the relationship between China and South Korea, or China and the Philippines that we've seen on display here just recently. The more this occurs, the more risk there is in the situation that a third party's action can become important in this primary dangerous dynamic. So again, historically, if you look at, let's say, Athens and Sparta, the classic case, here is Corinth, a ally of, of uh, Sparta that the Spartans really don't like at all but which gets into a conflict with Coursera, and the Spartans feel obliged to back them up, so one thing leads to the other. I think as these ad adaptations are occurring in the structural conditions in which China is becoming more powerful and more assertive, wanting just as I think in the quote I read from Evan, to change the rules or to adapt the rules, that creates a risk factor that we need to take account of. Yeah. Let me just footstomp Graham's point because I think it's an excellent one that we need to be mindful of third party actors, obviously. But what's interesting to me is in his research, third party actors you know, played this provocative role in all the instances except when you get into the nuclear age. And in the nuclear age, suddenly the barriers go way up so the ability of these third party actors to sort of drag major powers into conflict, I think begins receding. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Now, of course, we've got some wily uh, third party actors in the form of Kim Jong-un and North Korea now. Um, but as you know, my proposition is I believe that the US and China will be able to manage that even if there is some kind of military conflict. I apologize, one more note on the note. So, so basically, uh, Evan's point about these 16 cases, now only two of the cases of no war come after the nuclear age, only the Cold War and then the stretch case, that is the rise of Germany. The, uh, the rise of the US uh, to challenge and then rival and then overtake Britain beginning of the century is before we get to a nuclear age. And uh, secondly, in the nuclear age, so the U.S. as a nuclear superpower in 1950 gets dragged into a war with China. It is to the U.S. and to our commander, MacArthur, inconceivable that as we march up the Korean Peninsula to unify Korea, that Mao, who is only one year before consolidated control of his own mainland, who's running a country 150th our size, would attack Superman, who's just dropped bombs next door on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II? No, it just was, it was dumbfounding to him. So I think uh, even in the nuclear age, now that was just one nuclear power, not the other one, uh, and yes, agreeing completely that nuclear weapons remind people, have a great crystal ball effect, that if you get into a nuclear war, we may all be killed. 
So that creates a great deal of caution, which we can be thankful for. But nonetheless, even in those circumstances, we've seen, as we saw in 1950, the U.S. and China in a war that neither wanted. Okay, well, debate aside, we really had a terrific conversation here, uh, but we are having a debate. And that debate here is about the proposition there is a growing risk of war between the United States and China. So I'm gonna ask you all to please pick up your clickers. Make sure they're on. Um, it does have an on-off button, which you should see light up. And please vote whether you think Yes, we have a growing risk of war between the U.S. and China, or against the proposition voting no. <laughs> Everybody has to vote. I don't want to tie. That's it. <laughs> Let's keep voting. Get those votes in. Going to give you another 30 seconds here. Um, just think, the next voter could be the one to tip the scales. Um, as it is very, very, very close, because we've had a really terrific set of uh, debaters here today. All right, keep going. If you haven't voted, please register your votes. And it looks like the eyes have it, that there is a growing risk of war. Uh, <laughs> we're at 8177. Um, anybody else want to vote? <laughs> This has really been a terrific debate. Evan and I don't get to vote, yes. <laughs> no, and I'm not voting either. So, <laughs> All right, congratulations. Excellent job. Thank you so much. Thank you.